with reporting from around the world. It's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of Eye on Travel for this Super Bowl weekend, 2024. I hope you're getting ready for the big game wherever you happen to be. Let me tell you where we happen to be. Get out those maps, boys and girls. It's 40 degrees, 42 minutes north, 74 degrees, zero minutes west. We're in New York, in Soho, at the Hotel Dominic. And of course, you can always reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. So are you getting ready for Super Bowl weekend? Is there anything else you'd much rather do? Possibly. However, it's the big game, so I know you're going to be uh, torn away from even listening to me for a while to see that game being played in Las Vegas. You know, Las Vegas is nuts during any Super Bowl. This year, it's a double whammy because the Super Bowl is in Las Vegas, the last place in the world I would want to be right now. Just got to say that. I mean, it's a, it's a double negative for me. But let's find out from those of you who are going next week. Give me a call. Give me an email. Let me know how it was and how you survived. It's going to be wild. Of course, let's just say every Christmas, you know the deal, the North American Air Defense Command out there in Colorado uh, does a service every year for people who believe in such things. They track Santa Claus as he goes across the skies and the heavens to deliver presents to all the little boys and girls who have not been naughty but have been nice. Well, what's to prevent NORAD from doing another tracking this year? Will Taylor Swift make it back in time from her concert series in Japan? to get to Las Vegas in time for kickoff. So are we all going to be tracking that? I won't, but I just thought I'd mention it since so many of you are. By the way, we did the math. We did the calculations. Of course she's going to make it. Her concert ends at about 6.30 p.m. on on Saturday night, right? Uh, And guess what? And then she can take off. And guess what that means? She'll make it because it's only about a 12 and a half hour flight going eastbound and uh, she'll make just in time for kickoff. And uh, I know you're on your seats, in your seats, squirming, trying to figure out if that's going to happen. But this concludes my conversation about Taylor Swift. Now let's get to some more important things. The hearings this week on Capitol Hill on the FAA. The administrator was speaking and was getting grilled by Congress. The one thing that they supported him for was the fact that when that door panel blew out of the Boeing 737 MAX 9 back on January 5th, the FAA wasted no time in grounding the entire Boeing 737 MAX 9 fleet, that's 171 planes, until they could figure out what happened. All right, that's about the only good thing the FAA has done these days, because we have to look not at the catalytic reasons or the catalytic responses, we have to look at the underlying reasons, and that's where the problem is. So let's back up a second and talk about the investigation on the accident itself, which, by the way, the NTSB is classifying this as an accident, not an incident. So what does the NTSB do in every accident? And they do such a great job. They have to painstakingly rule every single thing out that could be a possible cause before they can rule any one or or two things in as a probable cause. So I've got some good news. They were able to rule out materials. Nothing wrong with the materials. They were able to rule out design. Nothing wrong with the design. They were able to rule out structure. Nothing wrong with the structure. Here's what they happened to rule in. Manufacturing, installation, inspection, and the big whammy, oversight. Who was watching the store? And what, of course, we knew for a long time 
It surfaced over two years ago. Actually, I take that back. Over four years ago when they had two 737 MAX planes crash, one in Indonesia, one in Ethiopia, that Boeing, as well as other manufacturers for decades, was allowed to essentially self-certify their airplanes, meaning that they were able to self-certify them as airworthy in the design phase and in the prototype phase, and then on the inspection line, they were able to certify them as they went down each particular model on that line as safe and airworthy. Here's the problem. Who was doing the inspections? Something called an FAA-designated inspector. Sounds pretty official. Sounds pretty professional. One small but glaring problem. That FAA-designated inspector worked for the manufacturer. Could have been Boeing. Could have been Lockheed. Could have been McDonnell Douglas. It was all three of them. And in this case, it was Boeing. Conflict of interest, without a doubt. And the FAA always looked the other way. Of course, the FAA's claim was they didn't have the money, the resources, or the staff, not to mention the training, to bring in their own people. So they basically deferred it to somebody else. They delegated it. They mortgaged it. This is not what you, what you delegate. Safety is numero uno. Boeing is not your client. The American people are your client. And so when that came out, under hearings on previous House Transportation Sec- uh, Chairman Peter DeFazio, everybody reacted in shock and said, Boeing is no longer allowed to certify their prototypes as safe. Okay, some progress there, but what about the planes they're actually building? And, as we've now learned in this investigation, what about the subcontractors, of which there are many, who's inspecting their work? It was the subcontractors who did the bolt work on that door panel. Of course, Boeing ended up certifying it anyway. So now you have two double negatives. What's going to happen now? Well, there's something called the House reauthorization bill for the FAA. Are they going to be reauthorized at a budget level where they can actually train, hire, and sustain independent third-party inspectors to do the work the FAA should have been doing all along? That remains to be seen. But everybody listening to me is a voter. You have elected representatives, and you fly. Everybody's been asking me over the last month, would you fly on a Boeing 737 MAX 9? And I always give them the same answer. If it's properly inspected, of course I would. And guess what? I would. But who's doing the inspection? Has it really changed? Look what just happened a few days ago. The CEO of Emirates in Dubai announced he didn't want to depend on Boeing anymore. He was sending his own inspectors to the production line of the Boeing 777, another model plane that Boeing builds that, that, you know, that Emirates is going to fly. What does that tell you? that the purchaser doesn't even trust the manufacturer. Whoops, we got a problem, Houston, and it has to be solved. Will it be solved quickly? I'm afraid not. You have to hire people. You have to train them. You have to make sure they're properly vetted. And they're doing the right work in the right way. So what's going to happen in the meantime? The production line at Boeing is going to slow. It may not stop, but it's going to slow. And it's not just going to be the production line of the 737 MAX 9. If you have a safety culture problem at a company, it goes way beyond just one production line, which means the 777, the 787 Dreamliner, and anything else Boeing makes, for that matter, even for the U.S. military, of which they're one of the largest contractors in the world, if not the largest contractor. So we got work to do. Uh, Obviously, we'll be monitoring this, and we're going to be taking a very close look at what's being done, as well as what's not being done, and I will report that to you in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Again, 
if the plane you're flying on is flying and being operated by an airline, you must assume it's been properly inspected. However, right now, all bets are off in terms of who they're going to hire and how fast they're going to do it. That is an imperative. It's not negotiable. It has to be done. When we come back, we'll be joined by my pal Scott McCartney, the travel editor emeritus of the Wall Street Journal, to talk about oligopoly, frequent flyer programs, and what you need to know in 2024. Stick with me from the Dominic Hotel in New York when we come back with more of Ion Travel right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to Ion Travel. Peter Greenberg here with you as Ion Travel continues from the Dominic here in New York City. You can always reach me. Just reach out by emailing me, peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. And of course, as I do every week, I want you to go to our website, petergreenberg.com, for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that amazing work and giving people what they need, who need it the most. And most importantly, opportunities for you every time and just about everywhere you travel to give back to those folks. And of course, what you get back from what you give back is exponential in return. We always like to localize those opportunities. Check out the Bowery Mission. They've been around since the 1870s here in New York. They have basically dealt dealing with homelessness, hunger, and many other crises. But by serving meals and providing shelter and clothing, the Bowery Mission helps the homeless make progress towards important individual goals. And uh, you can help. Volunteers are openly welcome. And uh, by the way, the people you're helping are the locals themselves. Who better to give you the, re- the best tour of Lower Manhattan, just for starters, than the folks you just helped out. Check out Bowery.org for more information. My next guest, a regular on our show. We're always happy to have him back. I call him the travel editor emeritus at the Wall Street Journal, our good pal, Mr. (laughs) Scott McCartney. Hello, Scott. Hello, Peter. Great to be with you. So there's just so much news out there today about about travel. I got to start with one that you and I have been tracking for a long time. Uh, actually three different airlines, JetBlue, Spirit, and Frontier. Uh, Just to give everybody Mm -hmm. a recap, at one point Frontier announced they wanted to merge with Spirit. And while that thought was going to happen, out of left field, here comes JetBlue with a bigger offer. The the shareholders said, hey, we want to get married to JetBlue. Then the federal government kicked in and said, we don't think so, not so fast. We think it's anti-competitive. It's going to end up raising airfares. And, of course, that ends up being litigated in court in Boston federal judge coming down and saying uh, he's blocking it because he agrees that he thinks it's going to be anti-competitive. Where are we with that case right now? Well, uh, the, the case right now probably isn't going anywhere. Um, I think, I think JetBlue wants out of the deal and, uh, and, and, and may take action to, uh, to kill it formally. Um, and uh, and and while Spirit can appeal um, from folks I talk to, there's not a lot of grounds to appeal here. And the reality is, Spirit is a much weaker airline than it was when JetBlue agreed to buy it. So JetBlue was going to renegotiate anyway. 
Um, and I think Frontier, although they wanted badly to buy Spirit uh, a couple of years ago, now they're looking at it and saying, Spirit is not worth nearly what we thought it was then. Um, and Spirit's in big trouble. Um, the Wall Street has started talking about using the B word, um, that there may be a possible bankruptcy here. They have Spirit, has, the company has lost $2 billion in the, over the last four years. And that can't continue. Um, and so they have a, they, they mortgage their loyalty program uh, for more than a billion dollars. And that loan comes due in September of, of uh, 2025. And so sometime before then, and Spirit's already said they're trying to refinance it. Um, but uh, there, there may be a fire sale here. Um, I, I think this is a case where I've always believed there will always be airlines that just have different names. And this is one where the Spirit airplanes may end up with different names on the side. Well, let's go back for a second because tell me if I'm crazy, but didn't we think that, especially during the pandemic, it would be the low fare carriers who would succeed? Yeah. And well, in, in any business, right, the low cost provider has the advantage. Um, and it turns out low cost is not winning in the airline business. And, and I think there are several reasons why. Um, one is that uh, the loss of business travel for the big airlines has has really been kind of permanent, right? They're, they're, they're down 20% from 2019 levels. It's actually worse than that because the economy's grown since 2019. Um, but there has been a structural change. People just aren't taking as many trips as they used to. There's still plenty of business travel, just not as much. So airlines have said, okay, we don't need as many flights between New York and Chicago or New York and Atlanta or Los Angeles and Dallas or whatever it might be, business travel market. So you know what? Let's take those airplanes and put them where there are passengers, which is the leisure market. Well, the leisure markets, Las Vegas, Orlando, Cancun, you name it, that's the bread and butter of the low-cost guys. So all of a sudden, the big airline competition came in and sat on top of them. And with basic economy fares, they've been scooping up passengers, taking market share away from the smaller low-cost guys um, who uh, used to benefit from because the big airlines were what's known in the industry as spill. They were, they were spilling passengers. We're not going to take your $49 passenger because we could sell that seat to somebody at a higher price. Well, now they, now they want the $49 passenger. The other thing that's really changed the industry are the frequent flyer programs. Airlines are making huge amounts of money selling miles and points to banks. They're, they're selling. And when you have a credit card and you get uh, a checked bag with that or you get early boarding with that, the bank actually pays the airline for that. So all that money that's coming in through the loyalty programs, that's where the profits are for airlines these days. And the smaller guys just don't have the, the credit card deals that the big guys have. And that's really changing the business. Of course, when, when JetBlue first went after Spirit, you know, the, the first question I had, and I presume it might have been one of yours, is that here you have two separate airlines, two separate cultures, two separate 
yeah. markets. Why would JetBlue want Spirit? And then it became obvious why they wanted them. They wanted the planes, and they wanted the pilots who were already trained yeah. to fly those planes. And so either way yeah. you look at it here, uh, at least it seems to me, Spirit may not be around that much longer if it's a standalone, or it would not have been around much longer had that merger deal been approved. No, and that was the government objection of the merger deal, because JetBlue was pretty upfront about it. JetBlue was going to take seats off of the Spirit planes, turn them into JetBlue planes, which has which offer more legroom. They wanted, as you say, the, the planes and the pilots. They also wanted Spirit's gates in the middle of the country. Spirit's pretty strong in Dallas and Houston and other, other places, Chicago, where JetBlue's not. JetBlue flies right over those cities. Um, but for JetBlue to compete against the big airlines, it needed more of a national network, needed to get bigger, needed to be able to offer good credit card deals to, to its customers, um, needed to offer uh, good service for attracting business travelers as well as leisure travelers. They just had to get bigger. Um, and so they looked at Spirit and said, you know what? Spirit's got a more of a national network. And so we would be, you know, we have the big four, right? American, Delta, United, and Southwest. Well, well, JetBlue could compete better against the big four if it had a bigger network. And that's really why they wanted Spirit. Now, with, with the case, with the Clayton Act, what the question before the judge was, hey, are there any Spirit customers that are going to be disadvantaged? And JetBlue was pretty upfront saying, hey, we charge low fares, but we're not the lowest. And so the judge said, well, then there's somebody who's going to get a $19 spirit fare, and that may be the only way they can fly. And they're going to be disadvantaged if there's no more spirit. And the problem to me, the problem with the ruling is there, there may be no more spirit, more likely because of the judge's ruling than uh, if the judge had ruled the other way. I, I and, think, and of course, you know, that brings you, up, and that brings up another question, Scott, and that is Frontier itself, because let's say yeah. Spirit goes away, then Frontier remains as the last of the ultra-low-cost carriers of any substance in America, and what's to prevent them at that point from raising airfares on average between 40 and $60? They'd still be the low-fare carrier, but they'd make a whole lot more money. Yeah, and I think Frontier looks at it and says, you know what, we could get some some of those spirit planes and pilots that we wanted. Um, we could get them a whole lot cheaper without assuming a lot of debt that, that spirit has. And so so they're waiting. Frontier's also doing a really interesting thing because they're not making money in the, in the leisure markets like they used to. Frontier just announced a whole lot of, of new service at, at the big airline hubs. Um, Atlanta and Dallas and Chicago and Charlotte, North Carolina. Wow. And so Fr Frontier saying, you know what? You came into our markets and hurt us. We're going to go into your <laughs> markets and hurt you. We're talking to so Scott we McCartney. More going on. We're talking to Scott McCartney, the, our good pal, the travel editor emeritus of the Wall Street Journal. When we come back, we're going to talk airline pricing for the summer. How bad is it going to be? Stick around. We'll tell you right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air.
Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg back. Ion Travel continuing from the Dominic right here in New York with our good pal Scott McCartney, the travel editor emeritus from the Wall Street Journal. I'm seeing stories all over the map, Scott, about projections about both international and domestic airfares for the summer of 2024. And on the international level, based on what I'm hearing from the airlines and from the guys who are tracking this, it doesn't look good. It looks like the international airfares could be up as much as 10% over last year. I, I think that's right for summer, although I, I don't have a lot of confidence in that because I think people are really price sensitive. And if Europe gets too expensive, for example, they'll go somewhere else. And, and that's fine. And so I think you could you could see a lot of fares come down. Airlines have really high hopes for summer, but uh, there are some signs that that may not come to be. Now, it's certainly... Uh, was more expensive last summer. But one of the things a lot of airlines have done is pump a lot more capacity in the schedules for next summer. And it may be one of those situations where, you know what, there is a need for more flights. And three air, three U.S. airlines and three European airlines, they, they all add the same number of flights that are needed. And all of a sudden, you got overcapacity. I, I don't know. I heard from my, just anecdotally, my daughter the other day, she's looking to go from Los Angeles to London and Paris, $600 round trip. Now, that's not a summertime fare, but that's that's a April fare. And so if it's that week in April, I uh, don't not I'm not completely convinced. Hey, yeah. hey, April in Paris. But let's go moving yeah. along. Yeah, I know. But now let's take a look at some of the projections for domestic airfares. I'm, I'm seeing numbers that are indicating they're coming down. Yes. Yes, they are. And and I experienced this myself. Uh, you know, I, I commute to North Carolina to teach at Duke University now. And uh, and I booked all my trips for for um, February, March, and April on, on Southwest. And right away, I got TripIt price alerts saying the prices had come down. I ended up with credits on Southwest for more than $200. It, it worked out to 8 and that was like bang, bang, bang right away after I bought the tickets. All of a sudden, things were going on sale. Um, so, yes, I think it, it's a really interesting time in the market. There are some factors that are taking capacity out. The Pratt & Whitney engine problems, the air traffic controller shortage, the, um, the problems at Boeing delivering airplanes. But even with those constraints, um, there is a lot of capacity in domestic markets, and when there's too much capacity, you get you get lower fares, and it's a great time for for uh, consumers to pick up those tickets. Well, I'm certainly hoping that Mr. McCartney is correct and on target as usual. But let's change gears here for a second and talk about one of my favorite topics, which I think is somewhat ludicrous. What makes an airline think that having nine separate boarding groups is an efficient use of time? Well. Peter, it is not about efficiency. It's about money. Um, boarding Nine different boarding groups are what you get when you start selling priority for different boarding groups. And, you know, we mentioned uh, the, the, the importance to airlines financially of their loyalty programs. You know, most of us don't get upgrades anymore. What do you get that's really a benefit from the loyalty program? 
Well, early boarding is one of the big benefits, right? right? And okay, now now that's one of the big benefits of credit card groups. And maybe you want your top tier frequent flyers to be one step ahead of the credit card people. And different credit cards are going to get different levels of early boarding. So all of a sudden, You've got all these different slices, and it's all because the airline is selling it. It has nothing to do with how quickly they can load an airplane. It, it has everything to do with how much revenue they can load on that airplane. I hear you. But I think they can actually redo the whole boarding process, keep the nine groups, but just relabel them. So here's my suggestion. <laughs> boarding group number one, people who are on their meds. Uh, boarding group number two, <laughs> people who are not on their meds. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, boarding group number three, people with personality disorders. Uh, boarding group number four, people acting like children. Uh, we, I can continue. I just think that's it's, yeah. honest, it's a more honest way to do it, you know. Um, and then, you know, or boarding group number six, most likely to act out. <laughs> you know, just a thought. At least it would make the, the flight more entertaining. Because you know, if they, once they call boarding group number six, get your camera out. <laughs> I know, I know. It's a, you know, it's it's a good thought. And what I'd really love to see the airline industry do is a real analysis of the cost of all of those nine boarding groups, not just in aggravation and everything else, but it takes longer to board. Well, that's minutes out of the schedule, and that's expensive for airlines. And I'm not sure they really take into consideration, hey, wait a minute. You know, Spirit did this years ago. If we could take out five minutes from boarding, well, then we could fly the same schedule with fewer airplanes. And airplanes are, you know, very expensive. Um, so it's so exactly. is crew time. You know, why, is it because you're, you're, you know, getting a little kickback from um, uh, American Express or, or uh, Chase Bank or whoever uh, for that credit card boarding group. You know, maybe if we shaved a few minutes out of the schedule on every single flight, uh, we'd come out better financially. I don't know. You know what? Point to ponder, and I will be pondering that while I'm standing in line in boarding group eight. Scott McCartney, <laughs> travel editor emeritus of the Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much for joining us. And when we come back, the brave new world of AI, how it really hits when it comes to travel content. Pretty scary stuff. We'll be right back. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg here, back with you from the Hotel Dominic here in New York. As Eye on Travel continues, of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Peter at PeterGreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. And speaking of problems, my next guest, a good friend of mine, and you know her because she, her father was, it was and still is in my book, the dean of all travel writers. I grew up with his books. Of course, his name, Arthur Fromer. Her name, Pauline Fromer who, of course, is uh, the big cheese now at Fromer and all of those books, the editorial director at Fromer's. Pauline, welcome back to the show. 
Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Peter, for having me on. And, you know, you and I were talking the other day, and the minute you told me some of these stories, I did a little research, and boy, were you right. You know, we all hear the words AI, artificial intelligence, or chat GPT, and everybody thinks it's an easy way out. Everybody thinks it's, you know, it can be used positively. But when it comes to content, and most importantly, to the credibility of that content, I've got some real issues with it, not only as a journalist, but as somebody who covers the travel industry. Um, You know, so many books right now are being sold on Amazon and other online retailers that are destination books on, you know, pick a country and the, and the authors essentially don't exist. Uh, And, and, and the information in there hasn't been verified or checked and yet they're being sold. And if you look at them, you know, and, and the photos on the, on, on online, they look like reasonably decent books. They look like they might be credible. They might look like they might actually be updated. The answer is none of the above. And of course, how many right. how many books and editions are you issuing every year, Pauline? Uh, well, it varies. Uh, we we try to do annual books on the big destinations: Hawaii, Paris, Italy, New York City. Um, we've got about one hundred and thirty books uh, that we update regularly. Um, but yeah, you're right. So there are all of these fake guidebooks up there. You said they're on Amazon and other sites. I'm not sure if that's true. I think they're mostly on Amazon because Amazon is printing them on demand. So Ah. Amazon is the printer of them. And, uh, you know, these books are being written by AI and nobody's even editing them. I decided to get one. I got it on Kindle, so I didn't have to pay quite as much. <laughs> and I was, it, was on, it was on Ireland, and it had a section about the different seasons in Ireland. And when it got to fall, it all became about the dangers of falling. Are you serious? Are so, you serious? Oh, yeah. Insane. So, so nobody's even reading these things before they issue them. And the crazy thing is they're doing AI-generated five-star reviews oh boy. in support of these books. So you see a book that's gone up a week before, and it already has 200 five-star reviews. For one of our books to get 200 reviews, that takes a full year. Um, so it's, it's really rough, uh, out there right now. And my heart goes out to all of the uh, guidebook readers who are getting scammed by these things. Well, you know, when you talk about those five-star reviews, that calls into question the credibility of all of the ratings on Amazon. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, it's the federal trade commission that is supposed to be overseeing reviews. They have not done much. Uh, for am on Amazon or other sites that paste uh, that put up uh, user reviews, and that there are there are watchdog groups that claim you know as many as fifty, sixty, seventy percent of the reviews you'll see not only just on uh, Amazon but on Google Maps, on TripAdvisor, on Yelp, uh, that they're simply disguised marketing that they're never really real reviews, or or maybe a third of them are. All right, so that begs the question, how do you stop it? Uh, you're, I think the FTC has to get involved, frankly. Um, and in this case, you know, it's not just that Amazon is letting fake reviews live on its site. Amazon is making money printing these books. It's making money 
selling the publisher publishers of these books keywords uh, so that people find them when they search for them and they're letting them put up these fake reviews. Uh, so to my mind, they are in bed with the fraudsters in this case. And so I'm, I'm hoping the FTC will see it that way too. Well, you know, we're going to reach out to the folks at Amazon to see if they'll come on the show and talk about this because if they make it that easy for someone to basically generate bogus copy, in many cases using traditional brand names as well, and then they, and they knowingly right. publish it, there's, there's got to be a penalty there. There has to be. We're talking, we're talking to Paula yeah, Fromer, who is the editorial director, of course, of the Fromer Guidebooks. And when we come back, more with me and Pauline, uh, talking about what would happen if I went to ChatGPT today and say, write a story about any place that Pauline Fromer might write, and what would it write? What would come out? Back with more on that right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg here, back with you again from the Hotel Dominic here in New York. We've been speaking with Pauline Fromer, the editorial director of the legendary iconic Fromer's Guidebooks, 130 titles right now. But we're talking about some other titles out there that may be bogus. I take that back. That are bogus, that are generated by AI with no vetting, no checking, no verification, and are being falsely and fraudulently marketed. And so has that happened to any Fromer books? Sadly, yes. Uh, and we had to, it took weeks for us to get Amazon to take down a fake Fromers Italy and a fake Fromers New York City. I'm spending too much of my time looking at Amazon now just to make sure that other people don't, don't try and stay, steal our trademark. Happily, friends of mine all put up one-star reviews saying this isn't the real Fromers guide. Uh, but, you know, we've We've been sold by Amazon since the beginning of Amazon. You would think they would know that we're the copyright holders. And it's not just us. There was a guy on Amazon putting out uh, fake guidebooks under the name Mike Steves. <laughs> oh, boy. As opposed to so, Rick Steves. Yeah. Right. Right. Unbelievable. Okay. But when, when, you get, when they put out that fake book, a fake Fromer's Guide on Italy, how did you, know, you, you talked about the, the dangers of falling in Ireland. What was the giveaway for you on, on, on the book they did with you? Well, it didn't. It, it said Fromer's Italy, but it wasn't our cover. And uh, I, I was alerted to it by Bill Newland of the Moon Guides, actually. He bought it, seeing that it wasn't our cover because, you know, we have um, a trademark logo. Uh, and he, he, he got it. You know, it was like all of Italy in, I think it was 85 pages. Um, you know, it just was useless. It was a piece of crap. Well, you know, I, I actually went on chat GPT about four months ago and I, and I would say, please write a story about fire Island, a place where I live, uh, that Peter Greenberg might write. And I have to tell you, it was very scary because it almost did just that. Right. Because, huh. because it was basically yeah. drawing in all the source material for that, which had already been written by me. But it was being, but mm. the byline said my name. 
Now, yeah. and not only that, I found probably 25 things in that story that were either out of date, misleading, mm-hmm. or, or, or downright yeah. wrong. Right. I mean, that's the thing with AI. It hallucinates. Uh, it doesn't always get the right, uh, the things right, the facts right. And sometimes it creates, uh, you know, sources and information out of whole cloth. And so you never know what you're getting. Sometimes it does very well, and sometimes it's totally off. Well, maybe there's another way to do this, because if you go on Amazon, they not only list the book, I believe they also list the publisher, don't they? Uh, Yes, but actually I can't remember what it said on the fake Fromer guides. That's very interesting. Um, I I don't know if I looked at that, but if it, God, if it happens again, I'm going to. But, you know, it's just whatever name this this con artist gave to themselves for this time, they'll probably do it under a different name uh, next time. And the thing that kills me is, as you and I both know, there's been a bloodbath in journalism. And we at the Fromer Guides are keeping dozens of hardworking journalists around the world in business. We hire actual journalists in the destinations we cover, and we're very proud that we're we're still giving them work. And, and things like this really hurt, you know, the good guys who are trying to employ human beings and, uh, you know, who do factual research. Well, that's the other point, Pauline. You're actually vetting it. You're fact-checking it. You're not just taking everything at face value and just, you know, printing it, which is exactly what's happening on these AI-generated books. Right. No, we have people in the destinations. They know them. We want to give our readers insider information that way. Uh, I write the New York City book. I just did the nightlife section, which was a hell of a lot of fun. And by the way, um, and by the but, way, on the, know, on, have, the, on the nightlife section, I want to commend you for that yeah. wonderful chapter on the fear of falling. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, all it happens kidding, in many bars. No, I but, hear. But, but all kidding. <laughs> but all kidding aside, I mean, this is a serious issue, and I want to encourage our listeners that if you're gonna, you know, here's what I do. I'm, I'm a big fan, as you know, of independent bookstores. I'm a big fan of supporting them. I'm a big fan of going to them. I'm a big fan of personal, physical browsing. And I think if you do that, you might just be pleasantly surprised at your own ability to discern real versus fake. You can't always do that online. Yeah, very true, very true. And and I hope people will do that with, with, with my books, with Pauline's books, with anybody who's a legitimate author out there who works very, very hard to come up not only with great ideas, but factually supported ideas. That's the key here. And in the world of travel and the world of travel journalism, especially in a world where a, a, a misstated fact or, or a complete you know, incorrect fact can get you in really hot water when you travel, this is, a, this is becoming a very, more, a very powerful issue, and I hope more people will pay attention to it. Uh, Pauline Fromer, the editorial director of all the Fromer's Guides. Please say hi to your dad. Please thanks, and then thank you, of course, I for will. joining us. And uh, I promise not to change my name to Peter Fromer. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. All right. That music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. We have a whole lot more coming from the Dominic here in New York as Ion Travel continues. You've been right listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. 
Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome back to Ion Travel for this Super Bowl weekend, 2024. If you're just joining us, I hope you're preparing all your Doritos and your chips for the big game, wherever you may be. Let me tell you where we are. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 40 degrees, 42 minutes north, 74 degrees, zero minutes west. We're from the Dominic Hotel right here in New York in Soho. Talk about location, location, location. It's perfectly located if you want to explore Manhattan by walking. It's close to the subways. It's close to every event you want to be at. And what I love about it is it even has a Michelin star restaurant now. You don't see many of those in hotels. Vestry. And we're going to talk to the chef a little bit later on the show about that. In addition to that, it's got, I mean, great views of the Hudson River. Uh, And finally... It's got some really decent hotel art. No longer are there the, the prints of the dogs playing poker, if you know what I mean. Great art by a man named Paul Richard, who uh, we'll be talking to again. But his artwork is, I wouldn't just say cutting-edge and innovative. It makes you question things. It gets your attention. It's, it's a curiosity, and it's, and it's entertaining. So uh, a little bit later, later on that, we'll talk about that. But let's talk about some other things, about etiquette, you know, we're still seeing air, you know, incidents of people acting out on planes or at airports. A terrible video that went viral this week about a woman who was drunk at the counter at the airport in Jamaica who literally stripped, and then uh, you, you don't even want to know. Uh, it was just disgusting. And, of course, we have incidents of, air, of airborne stuff, but sometimes it starts with just a little lack of, of etiquette. Here's the question, William Shakespeare. To recline or not recline? That's the question. And the answer is not an easy one. But actually, if you if you practice a little bit of smarts and politeness, it actually is quite easy. You never want to recline your seat right after they serve drinks or right before mealtime. You're gonna do, you're gonna really mess up the person behind you. Now there are some airlines that have developed new seats that don't recline back, they slide forward. That's a little bit better. But if your seat does recline back, it's a very simple solution. Turn to the person sitting behind you and say, hey, would it be okay if I reclined my seat? And they're going to tell you. And by the way, by you telling them, that gives them the idea of maybe turning around to the person behind them and paying it forward. And then everybody can just get along. Now, of course, some of these airlines claim their seats recline. <laughs> You've seen the video I've already posted on, on my websites about how pathetic that is. They give you the button to push to recline, and it reclines, I think, one millimeter. I mean, talk about ornamental. But in any case, at least politeness does reign supreme at 35,000 feet if you just practice it. Now, the same thing applies to your travel choices. I want to give a big shout-out to what I call the off-season. You heard me, the off-season. You know how the off-season got started? It got started actually right here in New York. Uh, Not far from here, by the way in the garment district where a bunch of escaped garmentos thought, well, you know what, they didn't want to freeze their you-know-what's in February, so let's go to the Caribbean. And then every other month became the off-season. It's a myth. Look, 
I don't go to Paris to get a suntan. And, you know, you can time your trips in a way that you're not going to stand in line. You're going to have better service. You're going to have a better experience. Now, you can go to the extremes. Uh, By the way, I've done it. I've gone to Alaska in February, and I've gone to Palm Springs in August. And guess what? I had a great time. It's a matter of how you time it and what you're, and, and, and how realistic you are about what you really want to accomplish and experience when you're there. So think about it. You want to go to, you know, to the Caribbean? Go from when? Come on, you know when to go. Between June and November, right? The temperature goes up maybe four or five degrees. It may be just a little more humid, but everything else is just fine. And then, of course, think Southern Hemisphere. When do you want to go to Australia? When do you want to go to South America? That's where the smart people go, and that's when they go, in the off-season. And right now, considering where airfares are, then you know exactly what you have to do. Play the game. Be a contrarian traveler, and all will be forgiven. You'll even forgive yourself. It's as simple as that. Speaking of forgiveness, consider this. Last week, American Airlines laid off 656 employees. Right? They're frontline customer service agents in Dallas and Phoenix, which now, of course, brings the words customer service into focus as perhaps being an oxymoron. The thing that got, me, got my attention was that when they did it, they issued a press release saying that it was going to elevate customer service. Really? Look, nothing beats a conversation. Nothing beats boots on the ground to solve a problem. And the accountants are going crazy now. They, they think they've just scored a, a touchdown in their own Super Bowl by getting rid of a lot of cost. But in the process, they've gotten rid of a lot of courtesy, a lot of common sense, and a lot of service. Uh, anytime I see a kiosk at a hotel or an airport, I run because I know it's not going to be able to answer my questions. With 656 frontline customer service agents in Dallas and Phoenix no longer working as of next month, who's going to answer my questions? I remember going to the counter, this was a United counter, by the way, in New Orleans to check in, and the guy said, oh, you don't have to check in here, you should check in at the kiosk. I said, I don't want to check in at the kiosk. I want to check in with you because I've got some questions. And this man looked at me with a straight face, oh, no, the kiosk can answer all your questions. And I said, no, it can't. He said, he said, look, I'll show you. And he walked me over to the kiosk. And six minutes later, he said, uh, you better come back to the counter. And I looked at him. I said, do you understand that this kiosk is designed to get rid of your job? Don't you get it? We all need a conversation. We need, we need politeness. We need the airlines to recline a little bit. That's the problem. We are now in a situation where it's oligopoly on parade. And for them to, to, to lay off 656 people in customer service and then tell us they've done this to elevate the customer service experience, wow. I think the person who laid them off might actually be on an acid. I mean, that doesn't make any common sense whatsoever. And by the way, when one airline does it, it's follow the loser. The other airlines are going to follow suit. You wait and see. Does anybody remember the days of the Redcoats at Delta? Well, they're still around. They're just harder to find. Remember, I have not been on a plane, and probably you have not been on a plane that's been on time in the last year and a half. And God forbid one of them was early. There was no gate available when they got there, so it didn't make any difference anyway. Again, bad scheduling, bad planning, and bad customer service. So something to think about. Again, wait for United and wait for for Delta to now do the same thing because they figure, well, if America can save all that money, right, 
We can too. When accountants run the asylum, everybody goes nuts because the accountants approach things in one way. How much is it going to cost? And you and I, I think, are smarter than that, especially as consumers. We approach things with another approach. How much is it worth? And you know what? American Airlines, and if Delta and United follow suit, may find that out, but a little too late. When we come back, we're going to be joined by an amazing organization, God's Love We Deliver. I first met them way back with Joan Rivers many, many decades ago, and they've been doing such great work ever since, something that they're partnered with right here at the Dominic Hotel, something that you can get involved with every time you stay here. And when we come back, we're going to talk to them about what you can do to help and what you're going to get back in return, which, as I always like to say, is exponential. So stick around. From the Dominic Hotel in New York, where they've got a one-star Michelin restaurant, by the way, talking about delivering, we'll be right back with more of Ion Travel right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to Ion Travel. Peter Greenberg here with you as we continue from the Dominic Hotel here in Soho. Of course, you can always reach out to me. By now, I know you know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website, which gives you a comprehensive list on a global scale of all those hardworking organizations doing all that important work, helping people who need it the most all around the world, but giving you an opportunity every time and just about everywhere you travel to, to help out as well. Uh, we always like to localize the opportunities. Here we are in Soho. Check out the Bowery Mission. It's the Tribeca Campus Shelter. They've been around since, get ready, the 1870s. The Bowery Mission, what a great volunteer organization. And you can help out in so many different ways in so many of their programs. But as I say, every week when you do that, you're hanging out with the very people who live here. Who better to give you a tour of the neighborhood than the people you just helped? Check it out. It's just Bowery.org. How simple is that? Or go to our website, petergreenberg.com, for the comprehensive list on a global schedule, on a global scale. My next guest represents an organization that's now making me feel very old because they've been around, they're nearing their 40th anniversary, and I go back with them, actually, to their very first years because an old friend of mine, Joan Rivers, used to be a very big part of the organization, and what is it? God's love we deliver. And he's going to explain it to you. Emmett Finley, how are you, sir? I'm, I'm great, and I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much. And happy to have you. First of all, you made me feel old when you said it was almost 40 years old, but how many meals have you delivered? Oh, my goodness. Uh, we just in September celebrated delivering our 35 millionth meal, and in no time, we'll deliver our 40 millionth. Now, let's talk about the concept Delivering meals to whom? Sure. So we are a food and nutrition nonprofit. And what we do is we cook, package, and home deliver medically tailored meals to people who are living with severe and chronic illness. Who can't get out, too. Right. Right. So we're serving our clients who are living with severe and chronic illness. Um, and we also serve their children and their caregivers because we understand that uh, illness uh, affects the entire family. And to give people a sense of history and perspective, in God's Love We Deliver was really started 
in the midst of the AIDS crisis and the AIDS epidemic at a time when half the country was in denial, nobody even wanted to admit it, nobody ever wanted to even recognize the needs of the people who needed it the most. That's right. We started in 1985 at the height of the AIDS pandemic, and we were started by one woman delivering one meal on her bicycle to one man dying of AIDS. Unreal. And now, almost 40 years later, we're delivering uh, to over 14,700 people a year and we're going to deliver over 4 million meals this year alone. You know, Emmett, we talk about food insecurity. That's one issue, about how many kids go hungry every night, uh, which is a problem that just keeps getting bigger, right? This is a different food insecurity, isn't it? That's right. I mean, it's it's the combination of food insecurity, malnutrition, and hunger, um, and illness all combined. And we're here to bring the relief from worry for someone who needs a meal, but they need not just a meal, they need a nutritious meal that is that addresses the illness that they have, their treatments, any other diagnoses they have, their symptoms, their preferences. So you're not just delivering mac and cheese. <laughs> no, we can. And I, it'll I be that. delicious and it'll be nutritious. But you know what I'm saying. Of course. I mean, so a lot of work goes into this in terms of the research before you ever show up at somebody's door. Absolutely. We have a staff of 10 registered dietitian nutritionists who design every single meal, uh, you know, in coordination with our kitchen team to get these meals built just for the person. And of course, how do you find everybody? Well, we find them and they find us. So, you know, often through word of mouth, we have these fabulous volunteers who come in week in, week out, and they have a neighbor, a friend, a loved one who is sick and needs help and will be there for them. Through the healthcare system, we, uh, people find us through their doctor. Their Referrals. Social, exactly, their social worker. Um, and we're here uh, to deliver to anyone who needs us who qualifies for our program. And I can tell you from personal experience, what you get back from what you give is exponential in return. When you volunteer and you actually physically uh, work in all the different facets of what you do, right? And then the final delivery is pretty amazing. A hundred percent. We hear that from volunteers every day, all of the time. Uh, they come because they know what they're doing is making a direct impact in someone's life. There's nothing more basic or moving or personal than making or and delivering a meal to someone. You know, we're here at the Dominic Hotel, and the reason why you're here on this show right now is because the Dominic, it's partnered with you and many of their staff people. They're involved in the meal delivery programs, too. That's right. After a long or short shift here at the Dominic, they come on over and they do a volunteer shift with us in the morning, afternoon, or in the evening. And then, of course, we've got people who are coming in from out of town, and they might stop by for a volunteer shift as well. And that's the point. If you're a guest at the hotel here, you can get involved. That's right. We're just down the street. It's amazing. How many meals a day? We're doing uh, 15,000 meals each weekday. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Okay, now, stupid question. Where's the food coming from? We purchase all of the food. We are really fortunate to have a very strong network of local and organic and sustainable uh, sources of food. We purchase all of it. We cook all of it on, in our kitchen just here in Soho. We only have one kitchen, and from that kitchen, we're delivering... All over the city. All over the city. All five boroughs and parts of Westchester, Nassau, Suffolk County, and Hudson County, New Jersey. Of course, you're a nonprofit, so you better give me the website right now. That's right. It's glwd.org. Which stands for? Oh, pardon. That stands for God's Love We Deliver.org. <laughs> Absolutely correct. And you win nothing for that. But the point <laughs> is, it's open to anybody. 
Right. And we really want people to know that our meals are free to clients and full of love, um, you know, uh, and that volunteering is something that we want to make possible, accessible to everyone. So whether you want to cook in the kitchen, deliver to someone's door, package meals in our headquarters, uh, we hope that you look for us, find us and come on down and see us. And how are you funded? We're funded through uh, private donations, 65% private donations, and the rest through healthcare and policy and, and grants and things like that. And I should note that you're working right now, on average, with about 23,000 volunteers a year. It's remarkable. And, and we're talking butcher, baker, candlestick maker, everybody. <laughs> yeah, the whole team. What's your biggest challenge? I think our biggest challenge is uh, making sure that we can continue to meet the ever-growing demand for our meals in, you know, the timely fashion. We understand that being sick and hungry is a crisis, that people should receive those medically tailored meals as soon as they reach out to us. And we know that in New York City, where one million people report food insecurity, of those, how many are also experiencing malnutrition? Let me stop you right there. One million? Yes. That's every day. Yeah. Right. Wow. Right. And so if all and so how many of those people are also experiencing illness and we we work at the intersection of this illness and malnutrition. And so we know that the 15,000 people we're going to deliver to this year is a drop in the bucket um, compared to, to the actual need in New York City. So we are here for New York City. We want everybody to know that we're here for them. Uh, they can reach out, find us and we'll be there. Has anybody modeled your program outside of New York City? Yes, we are proud members of what is known as the Food is, Food is Medicine Coalition. It's a national coalition of food and nutrition organizations like God's Love. And so if you're in Denver, San Francisco, San Diego, Boston, etc., um, there's an organization very similar to God's Love doing this critical work, getting medically tailored meals to people who are sick. Amazing. The website again? That's right, godslovewedeliver.org. But I'm not done with you yet, <laughs> because, you know, what I do on the radio, what I do as a journalist is all about storytelling, so that every, you, you talk about one million people with food insecurity, that's one million stories waiting to be told, one million stories waiting to be shared. That's right. So if you're volunteering with God's Love We Deliver, you are in an enviable position, because you're not just a delivery person, you're actually about to hear stories. That's right. And you're about to share stories. And you're about to tell your own stories because at the end of the day, it's all about a conversation too. That's right. And we know it's just deeply personal work, what the volunteers are here to do um, to make a difference in someone else's life. There's nothing like it. You, you come to God's love. You want to do a good thing. You leave feeling different than, than you ever have. I'm going to make a wild guess to tell me if I'm wrong. Somebody who volunteers with you ends up developing new relationships because... These are people who are usually by themselves, usually don't have a big circle of support around them, right? And you're bringing them food, but you're also bringing them food for thought. There we go. You know, our volunteers come and they create entire family and friend systems on their volunteer shifts, right? When they come for a weekly shift or once a month or whatever it is, they make connections. And the same thing with our clients, many of whom our delivery person is the only person they see that day. That's the point, yeah. And often that week, we're here to build connection and say, when we show up to, to someone's house, we're here to say, we know that you need this food. We're here. We see you and we love you and we care about you. Without taking the symbolism too far, the food actually becomes the appetizer, if you will, for a longer conversation. That's right. Amazing. 
Emmett Finley from God's Love We Deliver. Thank you so much for joining us. The website, once again, I can't be more enthusiastic. <laughs> you can find us at godslovewedeliver.org. And if you're on Instagram, I do want you to give us a follow at godslovenyc. And you know what? As I say before, what you get back from what you give back is exponential in return. If you're staying here at the Dominic, I'm sure they can help you and point you in the right direction so you too can be part of this amazing program. Emma, thanks again. Thank you so much. And when we come back, more of Ion Travel as we continue from the Dominic Hotel right here in Soho. Back right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg here. We're back as Ion Travel continues from the Dominic Hotel right here in Soho in Manhattan. You can always reach me. You know the drill. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Have you been driving in your car lately, especially on interstates in different states? There's an attempt at humor now. And actually, I, I want to give credit to these guys in the highway departments for putting road signs up, you know, the ones that are that they can change, that you know, either have double entendre or, or they just have some fun meaning, but they're actually trying to prove a point. So in Massachusetts, they have one. Ready for this? It's, and it's actually, uh, there's one that says, changing lanes, use yablinka. All right. In Iowa, the Department of Transportation tried out one calling texting and driving. Oh, sell no. <laughs> oh, you wacky Iowans. And then in New Jersey, of course, they had to pay tribute to the boss. That's right, Bruce Springsteen. The sign said, slow down. This ain't Thunder Road. Now, in Maine, they, they did a little contest to see who was going to put up an, uh, you know, a, 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 a clever road sign. Here's one that almost won. Uh, actually, it did win. It urged drivers to slow down, especially when it's snowing. And here is the sign. Little known fact. Snow is really slippery. <laughs> okay, I'll take that for a, a, a good attempt. And they, and they deserve some praise for that. However, the U.S. Federal Department of, Tra of Highway Safety is now saying that some of these signs may in fact be distracting. And they're urging states to just tone it down a little bit. I disagree. They're not visual signs showing people engaged in, an, in a sexual act. They're not visual signs showing people doing something they shouldn't be doing. They're actually getting your attention by giving you a message you really should take seriously. So I'm all in favor of those kind of signs continuing. All right, let's go to your emails again. You can always reach out to me, peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Here's one from Carolyn. She goes, do you think timeshares serve a purpose in the travel industry, do you have an opinion on timeshares? Oh, yes, I do. Uh, and it might surprise you. Let's go back to the traditional timeshare. You know what it was? It was a failed apartment building somewhere near a resort area that they turned into a timeshare with bad management, right? And then people got sold the idea that once they paid for it, it was theirs in perpetuity. Yeah, basically, it was like a death sentence. They couldn't trade it. They couldn't sell it. They couldn't get rid of it. They had to spend the same two weeks there a year you know, each year for the rest of their life. And because it was badly managed, the building started to fall apart. 
and, and Timeshare's got a, a deservedly bad name. No doubt about it. Uh, well, Timeshare's have gotten better. Reputable companies, Marriott, Hyatt, Hilton, the big you know hotel companies have gotten into the timeshare business. Of course, it's no longer called that. It's vacation ownership for those of you who've been paying attention. Uh, and that's good. But one thing that goes beyond that, other than better management, is two things you have to be aware of. One, you need to ask if you're going to buy one, can I trade them? Can I trade locations? Can I swap out? Are they a member of an association that lets you do that? That's one. Number two, management fees have gone higher, and in some cases, very high. And you have to be honest with yourself if you're going to buy this. Do you really want to burden your kids by giving it to them, and they're not going to use it, and they're not going to know what to do with it? Or are you really going to use it those two or three weeks a year? And if so, and if you can trade locations, then it becomes kind of fun if you can plan ahead. So the answer to your question is, do I have an opinion on timeshares, and do they really serve a purpose in the travel industry? Yes, they do serve a purpose. If first you're honest with yourself, and if the timeshare management company is honest with you in terms of fees, it's no different than the concept of Airbnb. Think about it. Great idea. They've done tremendously well. However, what's the one thing not discussed that gets everybody beaten up? Cleaning fees. Once again, it gets down to the fees. If you don't negotiate those up front, then you're along for a ride, and then you know, you're know you asking everybody that you know to buy your timeshare from you. And most people get a big, fat no from that. Okay, let's move on. Here is one from, who wrote this? Eleanor. And she says, uh, my friend and I are contemplating a cruise in late September and early October to view the fall foliage. I'm thinking Eastern Canada. Uh, my preference is the shorter seven-day cruise, but she wants to do a cruise where she doesn't have to leave and return to the same port. I found two cruises that leave Boston and end in Quebec City. Holland, America, and Norwegian. Uh, and they have another one that goes Boston and returns to Manhattan. Okay. Uh, do you know of, of or recommend any other cruises? Well, here's the deal. If you can do it by cruising up in one direction and sailing back in another, uh, excuse me, cruising up in one direction and flying back in another, uh, that's the traditional Alaska cruise model, that's what you'd want to do. Because it allows you, and, and by the way, I would cruise up and fly back. Uh, because it allows you to, once you get up there, take another four or five days off and immerse yourself in that destination. And Quebec City is phenomenal, right? Talk about great food, no matter what time of year. And then you get to come back, uh, and you'll, you'll be back home in you know less than two and a half hours. That's the way to do it. Uh, now, if you want to cruise up and cruise back, if you have extra time, great. But you're stopping at the same ports, right? So. If you can go from Boston to Quebec City and then fly back to Boston or fly back to New York, then you're in. And that's what I'd suggest. It's really an easy thing to do. By the way, coming up, you're in for a treat. I've been saying this earlier in the show. The Dominic has a one-star Michelin restaurant, Vestry, and the chef is coming by to talk about how he sources the food, how he chooses the menu, and why the experience here is well worth the deal. So stick with us. Coming back with more from the Dominic Hotel in New York right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. 
Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues from the Dominic here in Soho in New York City. And of course, you can always reach me. Just email me, peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will be solving it throughout the show. My next guest has quite a pedigree, uh, born in Australia. He's way younger than me. I hate him. But born in <laughs> Australia. Uh, 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 by, in fact, he was born in Australia when I was already covering stories there. So, uh, But he's had a meteoric rise. Uh, a Michelin-starred chef, not once, but twice in New York. Excuse me, three times in New York. And he's got the restaurant right here at the Dominant called The Vestry. Hello to Sean Hoggett. How are you, sir? Fantastic. How are you? I'm good. Uh, you know, in the world of hotel restaurants... You know, it wasn't that long ago that a hotel restaurant was an afterthought. A hotel restaurant was basically steak and potatoes. A hotel restaurant was the place you went to if you were too tired to go anywhere else. Those days have changed. You know, I think also you have to think about restaurants as a different evolution because today we're in 2024. Um, for me, I grew up in hotels and restaurants from very young age. Well, you were, you were Ritz-Carlton in Sydney. Yeah. Ritz-Carlton in New York here. Yeah. And where else? Uh, I was executive chef at the Satai Hotel. I opened that property there. I had already. By the way, I know this is radio, but you're dressed perfectly for the Satai, because this, everybody's black on black at the Satai. And when you check in, they go, "You'd be here because you're checking in." Why? <laughs> I think it makes you look skinny, so that's why I wear it. You know what? I, I better start doing that. You're right. <laughs> but yeah, I actually started in a commercial kitchen when I was five. My father was a chef. My uncle was a chef, but more importantly, it was my grandmother who was the inspiration of everything that I'm about today. Um, so I'd been practicing the art of cooking um, since I've been a very young age, and she was so instrumental with the education, the focus, and also the discipline of life. So she was the one who really sort of sparked my, my uh, cooking career off. You talk about a style of cooking. Could you define that for me? Yeah, I think I have the ability to do a lot of different concepts. So if you look at all of my restaurants, they're all very different. Um, I love the creative side of it. And I think also when I, when I look at a restaurant, I don't just see it as the food, the menu. It's about the uniforms. It's the metrics of the, of the wine program. It's all of those wonderful things that you put together so it's a full package. And I think that's the way that I see the restaurant business. But how does your restaurant here... Vestry differ from your other restaurants? Well, you know, Vestry is a 60-seat restaurant. It's quite boutique. Um, it is very it's cozy. You no, know, yeah, it's cozy but busy, and I <laughs> and I think the one thing is it was really when I worked with the designers, it was about this, a Soho centric uh, look because obviously we're in Soho, we want to really embrace the neighbourhood. Um, seasonality was a big thing for me as far as the menu and also the the, the beverage program because obviously we want to have the cocktails that are going to be very very seasonal, um, and just using high quality products the best that I can find and offering them to be the star on the plate. There's not too much manipulation of what the product's about. When you talk about the best ingredients you can find, we live in a brave new world now where sourcing is not that difficult. Well, it is actually. This is 20 years of relationships that I've had with the best fish vendors, the best ah. meat vendors. And they understand that when they go and pick something up from the docks or the boats, they know the standard of what I'm looking at. And most people accept, you know, another level down, but I'm very, very stringent about making sure we have the best product available. So there's one chef that might accept the day boat, right? You, you, you basically say, we want to look at the day boat. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> And I think that's the, the art of what they do too because it's a whole chain. And I think my, my job and also the, the, the victory of what I do and the joy of what I do is to be able to use that. Somebody's actually handled it, they've caught it, then they've picked it, they've kept it on ice, you know, they've brought it to me and then I get to just show off what, the gr what great product we have, you know, especially nature, you can't replicate it. But in terms of the sourcing that you do get, 
it's no longer seasonal in that respect. If you wanted strawberries in the middle of the winter, you could find them. Yeah, but I try to stay away from that. You know, we have a great market in New York City, Union Square Market. It's just amazing. During the spring, the summer, you'll have all the vegetables. And right when the heat is in, in, in play, tomatoes, strawberries, all these wonderful things that need a lot of sun is the only time that I'll actually put them on the menu. And how often do you rotate the menu? Uh, probably six to eight times a year, but not the whole thing. Like we'll probably do 25% every, say, couple months just to keep people interested. Uh, you got to keep the mainstays because that's what people expect. They want to have the beef ah. or they want to have this. they got to keep it. And what then, is your definition of a mainstay? Uh, everyone's a meat and potatoes person. And Still? I'll, yeah, and it doesn't mean you can't flip the idea about what meat and potatoes is. The Wagyu beef has been on since the, the inception of the menu. Okay, wait a minute. It's not beef and potatoes. It's Wagyu beef and potatoes. Well, still, it's a cow. Okay. You know what I mean? And it's potatoes. Still, I love that. You should put that on the menu. It's, <laughs> it's a cow. It's still a cow. Yeah. But, you know, I think the tuna tartare has, has also been a, a huge hit. Familiarity is extremely important in the restaurant business. You want to make sure that people understand what you're cooking and then just, again, give it a bit of a twist and a flavor profile that they love. And if you do that often and early enough, you keep them coming back. That's the point. You know, I think that keeping people focused and interested, I mean, there's something like 13,000 restaurants around this area. I mean, it's crazy. So the competition is high and low. I feel like if you're consistent with the product and you really know your client base, you know the demographic and the critical mass that's around you, it's a, it's a, it's a good start. We're talking with Sean Hargett, the Michelin-starred chef of three restaurants in New York, including the Vestry, right here at the Dominic. Stick with us, folks, when we come back. More with me and Sean as Ion Travel continues from the Dominic. Here in Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. And we're back. Peter Greenberg as Ion Travel continues from the Dominic right here in New York. We're talking to Sean Hargett, who's the Michelin-starred restaurant chef of three restaurants in New York, including the Vestry right here at the Dominic. You talked about rotating your menus and what are the staples, like, the, you know, the beef and potatoes, or the, excuse me, the Wagyu beef and potatoes. <laughs> is, and I always like to ask this of chefs, is there one item when you open the restaurant here that you thought, this is the home run, this is the one that everybody's going to love, they can't get enough of it, and nobody ordered it? You know, there's been actually so many of those, and I think <laughs> the one thing is, is that it's it's really, it depends on, it's it, it depends on the day, it also depends on the week, but as soon as you get one of the runners that you think in your head, just say it's like... The chicken, or if it's going to be the pork, the lobster, which are pretty mainstay sort of products. And are you telling me people don't want lobster? Yeah, it's not not everyone's cup of tea. Chicken is not everyone's cup of tea. Pork is definitely something that is a, a bit of on a back burner. I'm very, very careful about the strategic positioning of food on a menu. And I think especially in Manhattan, there are certain places you can go and get really amazing pork or you can get amazing Korean food. With this style of restaurant, you have a variety of different things. So what we have to do is learn. We actually go to a P-mix so we understand what the product mix is and how much we get in sales. That will determine on what stays and what doesn't. So even though we've got two, two soups on the menu, if one runs for the next two months, we'll take off the other one and change it into something else to see if we can even it out so that the menu's more even. 
And of course, depending on the restaurant that you're going to, and this is one of my favorite little topics, it's menu psychology. Absolutely. It's where you place the actual item on the menu. And the price point, understanding exactly the positioning on the menu, the type of menu you're offering. Branzino, I'm telling you, we have the best Branzino, and it's the biggest runner, and it's for two people. It's grilled, and it's just amazing. And I think that would be something that you could put on a menu in America, and everyone's going to buy it. It's just one of those things that will never fail. But where do you put it actually on the menu? It's actually a double. It's for two people. So it's right at the bottom because as you progressively go down, the price point's higher. So what you want to do is leave that last. You don't want to put it in sticker shock at the start. And it allows the uh, server to be able to educate you on how the system on the menu is working. And I think if you've got a $99 or $100 price point for a piece of fish, people are like, oh, wow, it's expensive. But when you split it down the middle, you have the highest quality brands, you know, that was picked that morning, grilled by professional people and served by excellence. I think that, you know, then they understand, well, you know what, it's, a, it's for two people, it's 50 bucks a piece, we give these beautiful sides as well, so you get value for money, and it allows you to have an appetizer dessert, and it's not going to fill you up too much. And chicken fingers and the french fries, are where, where are they located on the menu? Oh, that's for the kids, that's verbal, <laughs> you know, and, and we have a lot of children, we're always very friendly, it's like, we don't have really a dress uh, standard either, it's just, those days of a jacket and sort of the formality have gone, and I think that it's a good thing. It allows people to be free. We're in Soho. They're very cool. These people wear cowboy hats and all these crazy things. And, you know, you just want people to come and have a good time. Can I give you my test for a great restaurant? Sure. Okay. It gets out of really simple stuff. I test the restaurant based on who makes the best grilled cheese sandwich. Oh, yeah? Well, you're going to be in trouble here. Really? Yeah, we don't have grilled cheese. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you're not helping me out here. But, I mean, you can actually mess up a grilled cheese sandwich. You can mess up everything. Everything has an art and a, and a procedure and a system in place to be able to get to a consistent product. Like, even if you're going to cook an egg, right, you have to have the boiling water for, you know, drop it in from room temperature, then 10 minutes after, then you know you're going to get a perfectly cooked egg. So if you don't follow that procedure, it's not going to be the same every time. And so it's basic you, as an egg can be. So basically you're telling me you got your eggs together. Yeah, okay. a little bit. A little bit, a little bit. Not too All right, much. now, let me, let me flip the, the page. What was the one item you said, do I really have to put this on the menu? Oh, this is just, and everybody just couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, it's actually the, you know, oddly enough, I put this cheesecake on, right? And it's just shape of a cheese. It's got like this little mouse in homage to New York. Anyway, it's become viral, like viral on Instagram. There's people in Australia replicating it. I've got friends of mine who are You have a mouse on the cheesecake. Yeah, it's made out of apple and ginger, and it's got a little tail with some hazelnut ears. At least it wasn't a rat. Well, you know, it could be perceived as a rat. It <laughs> a depends. small rat. Yeah, exactly. A small rat. <laughs> exactly. But this, is it, this is thing is a hit. It's crazy. So, you know, if you could motorize mm. that rat and have it drag the cheesecake, it would go viral on everybody's phone. I'm a chef, not a mechanic. <laughs> but that's a big seller. Yeah, biggest seller on the dessert menu. Can't take it off if I tried. Thought about actually manufacturing it because everyone loves it. And then obviously, as I said before, you know, somebody in a pastry shop, I, I picked it up in their... Uh, in Australia, it was crazy. Amazing. Yeah. Is there anything you miss about Australia? I miss everything about this, of Australia. I mean, this is really, I live 50% there in my life, 50% America. I do call myself an American now because, you know, obviously I've been here for so long, but my roots have been really strong with Australia. I go back once or twice a year. I still have my family there. I got all my mates there. It seems like I've never actually left. Every time I go back, it's just a little bit, people a little bit older. They got kids. Oh, a oh bit you bigger. noticed that, huh? Just yeah. a touch. Yeah, just, just a, a touch. touch. After 23 years, yeah. Is there an Australian dish on your menu? Not Australian dishes, because I think it's very hard for an American to understand. But what we do is have a lot of Australian. No Aboriginal grub? Uh, generally not, no. You've got to be a bit careful with live worms in, in America. But yeah. no, I, I use Australian products um, as a highlight, not necessarily all the time. Um, 
It, it's also got to do with the fact that, you know, sourcing, I try to keep it as lo- local as possible. I don't like to use too much planes, but, you know, if we get a special of, like, Wagyu beef from Australia and it's a great price and I love the product and I taste it, then I'll put it on. You know, I think at the end of the day, we are in a business, so we want to make sure that we support local community too. Absolutely. Yeah. Sean Hogger, the, the major domo chef here. <laughs> at, can I call you major domo? You can call me whatever you want. I just did. There we go. At, the <laughs> <laughs> at Vestry here at the, Dom- at the Dominic, and of course the other two restaurants are? Aqua in Vegas, um, and also there's, one, there's actually three more coming up, so we're going to leave that as a secret, and uh, we'll leave it there. All right, that music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, folks. We have a whole lot more coming as Ion Travel continues from the Dominic in Soho right here in New York City. Back right after this. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here back with you as Ion Travel continues for this Super Bowl weekend 2024. And no, I cannot tell you if Taylor Swift is in the air yet. I cannot tell you if she's landed. Probably hasn't even left Tokyo yet. Maybe she has, but... You know what? She'll be there in time for the kickoff, and you know you're going to see her. So, okay, this concludes all Taylor Swift references for this show. Now let's move on and talk about what's going on out there in the world of travel. Lots of things to talk about. Of course, you can always reach me. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. We're coming to you from the Dominic Hotel right here in Soho in Manhattan. What a great location. What great views. they got a one-star Michelin restaurant, and they're not kidding. Plus, great artwork. I mean, every room is its own special art gallery. You need to come see it. By the way, speaking of finesse, (laughs) I got to tell you this. We all know the game that we play with carry-on bags because every airline seems to have a different sizer these days. And you may have seen the video I posted a couple of weeks ago on our website, uh, petergreenberg.com, of the guy who got to the gate at EasyJet in London, and they told him his bag had to fit in the sizer. So he put it in and kind of went halfway in. They said, nope, not good enough. They're going to charge him. So he said, okay. He took his foot and he jammed it in further, went in about three-quarters of the way in. Nope, not good enough. Then he took his foot and just pummeled it in there. And it was good enough, except it couldn't come out of the sizer. So what did this guy do? He just lifted up the bag and the sizer, <laughs> that whole big thing, and walked on the plane. Proof positive that some airlines just will go to any extent they can to, uh, to charge you for revenue they don't deserve. Uh, by the way, we all know about the one carry-on bag rule, right? Plus the big nebulous one, one personal item. But let's take a look. Spirit and Frontier, they charge for even small carry-on bags. And some travelers have chosen to wear their luggage. We've talked about this on the show before. There's one group called Scott Evest. They make jackets with like 34 separate deep pockets. You're literally wearing your bag on the plane. You look like a demented Michelin tire man. But guess what? They're they're not charging you for wearing something, right? Well, now we've gone beyond that. A lot of people now are saying, I'm worried about overweight charges on even the bags I'm checking in. So if they say, can you remove something from your bag to make sure we don't check charge you more, you know what they're bringing to the airport? 
pillowcases. And they're jamming everything they can into that pillowcase, and it becomes their pillow. They're special. Now, the pillow may be hard as a rock, but it's a pillow, and that's the game they're playing. <laughs> I love it. And uh, I love watching the, the, the circus and the menagerie that happens and the delicate dance that goes on at counters where people are forced to open their bags and rearrange stuff that they can't possibly rearrange. And somehow the pillowcase is now coming to the rescue. But check out that Scott E. Vest. 30 pockets. And and everybody knows when you're wearing it. I mean, you can't hide it. Everybody knows when you're wearing it what you're doing. But you know what? You're beating the airlines at their own game, playing by their rules. Now, you may need help putting your coat in the overhead compartment because it may weigh so much. But at least you may not have had to pay for that additional carry-on or check bag. All right, let's go to some emails here. Uh Let's go to this one right here. Uh, this is from Joy. And she writes, my husband and I are going to Dubai. He may need a scooter. Do you know if they have any scooters available? The rental's there. He doesn't really need one right now, but we want to be safe. What, you know, can you tell us to know what we need to know up front? Here's the answer. There's a group called SATH. It stands for Society for Accessible Travel and Hospitality. And they have a very good website and a very good resource to give you the idea that you need and the information that you need as to whether or not that equipment's available. If you figure out your hotel, again, the hotel can help you as well. They do a lot better job in Dubai at hotels and airports than they do in this country. So check that out, and I think you uh, you won't be disappointed. All right, here's one from uh, Bruce, who says, We're going to Bali from Chicago for a wedding July 18th, so you're planning ahead. We'd like to spend a few days in Singapore first. Please recommend a travel agent. Well, before I do that, uh, I can I, I can rec- recommend a travel imperative, and that is if you're going to go all the way there, right, from Chicago, consider something called an RTW ticket. It stands for, as you might suspect, round the world. And for, for, a, for a fare that may be only minusculely more expensive than a round-trip ticket to Singapore with a stop in Bali, uh, you get to go around the world with stops in Singapore and Bali and a few other places along the way. Now, you have about six months to complete the trip. In some cases, you can buy a version where you have a year to complete the trip. The only rules are you can't, you know, can't double back. You can split the trip. So let's say if you're going from, from um, uh, the U.S. to Australia and land in Sydney, and then you want to fly out of Perth and take the train from Sydney to Perth, you can do that. Or you can do like an up and down, like, you know, but you can't just reverse, reverse direction. So you're either heading eastbound or you're heading westbound. But I think you'll find... It's a great deal. Now, there are a couple of companies that specialize in that. One is called Airtrex. They're up in Oakland, California. It's a sort of a complicated ticket to write. My suggestion is to put in every place you want to stop because it's, it's easier to pull coupons out later than to try to add them. But it might be the way to go. Now, you asked me to recommend a travel agent. I'll recommend two. And, there's, and they're not agents, but they're consortia. One is called Virtuoso. And these are agents that specialize in great travel based on either region, destination, or affinity. And the same applies to Signature. Both great groups, and they have websites, easy, virtuoso.com and signature.com. And they can get you to an agent that can help you. It's, uh, it's as easy as that. But again, most people don't consider the round-the-world option, but I'm here to tell you it works. All right. Ah, here's one from, from Doug who says, I've begun planning a trip to Australia for my wife and I. And it will be a lifetime adventure. I'm, ex- I'm seeking help in planning this trip. Okay, well, here's what I'd, what I'd suggest. 
you have how many days? You th- I think you said 16 days you wanted to do it. Well, if you've got 16 days to do it, the tendency is to fool yourself into thinking you can do Australia in 16 days. You cannot. Uh, it might even be difficult to do Sydney and Melbourne in 16 days. So pick and choose carefully because even though this may be a trip of a lifetime, it's essentially an appetizer, right? 16 days is really not enough time to do any country of that size. Think about India, right? So pick for, I, w- I would try to do the following. Do Sydney, do Melbourne, and then treat yourself to Tasmania. It's only a one and a half hour flight from Melbourne down to Hobart, and then you can back through Sydney and fly home, or back through Melbourne and fly home. A number of airlines have nonstop service from Melbourne back to the U.S. That's what I would do. And don't deny yourself the opportunity to take a deep breath in each city. So if you're doing 16 days, give yourself five days in Sydney, maybe five days in Melbourne, and three days in Tasmania. That only gives you 13, right? And then you got to put in the travel days it takes to get there and the time to get back and the connect, and you'll be just fine. If you try to do more than that, you will come back needing a vacation, and you don't want to do that. The most important thing you want to do is what? Have a great time. Immerse yourself in a culture at least long enough to do more than just touch a base and run to the next base. So 16-day trip, make it 13 days with travel days included, Sydney, Melbourne, and then the treat, Tasmania, where most of that country is natural forest, and it's terrific. All right? When we come back, we're going to learn what a modern elder means. That's right. What does a modern elder mean to you, especially when it comes to travel? We'll find out from our good pal Chip Conley when we return to the Dominic Hotel right here in New York as Ion Travel comes back right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. And we're back. Peter Greenberg here with you as Ion Travel continues from the Dominic Hotel in New York. You can always reach me. You know the drill. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. My next guest I've known for way too long. I remember (laughs) many, many years ago when he did the impossible, he founded what then became one of the largest boutique hotel brands in America. And then what did he do? At the height of that success, he changed gears, went over to Airbnb as the in-house, get this term, modern elder. I'd like to think of myself as that too. Um, And then, of course, to the three young founders. And today, he's now the CEO. He's kept the name of the Modern Elder Academy. But most importantly, he's just written a new book, which I highly recommend, called Learning to Love Midlife, uh, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. Chip Conley, welcome back. Oh, Peter, you are my modern elder when it comes to travel. That is for sure. And let's define modern elder for a second. What the founders of Airbnb said is, Chip, you are as curious as you are wise, and that's what makes you a modern elder. So I like that. I'll take that. I will absolutely take that. But, you know, the name of your book says 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. I'll just take one. (laughs) I'll go with one, you know. But but what yeah. this is but what this is all spawned, Chip, and I really want to talk to you about this, is yeah. the book deals with a different approach to midlife, uh, not necessarily as a crisis, but as an opportunity, and and what's interesting to me is what it's really spawned for you. You know, we've talked about we talk about adventure travel or eco travel, we talk about educational travel, 
But we haven't really talked about what you're doing right now. It's perhaps the latest travel trend, longevity travel. Explain that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I have loved the travel industry since I started my boutique hotel company at age 26, Joie de Vivre, uh, based in San Francisco. And then in my late 40s, I didn't want to be doing it anymore. And I was sort of going through a bit of a midlife crisis. Now I, now I would call it the midlife chrysalis um, because the chrysalis is this, the midlife stage for the butterfly. And I was going through a transformation, but I just didn't know what to, how, I didn't know how to go through it. There was no roadmap. And then I went through my 50s helping the founders of Airbnb and loved that. And they called me the modern elder. And I started getting curious about like, what is this midlife life stage? I, I didn't like my late 40s. I loved my 50s. Um, and I started doing research on it. And the next thing I, I knew, I was talking to this guy, Dan Butner, who had written about blue zones and um, about the places in the world that have the greatest percentage of centenarians, people who've lived to 100. And he found five of them around the world. And I, so I started studying with Dan. And then as I created, I decided to create the world's first midlife wisdom school, MEA, the Modern Elder Academy, after my Airbnb time. Um, I brought Dan on as one of our faculty members. And we now have a partnership with Blue Zones, where we do multiple Blue Zones workshops each year at MEA. Because I think I think the next travel trend is going to be longevity travel. People are getting there. They want to figure out how to not just live longer, but live a deeper, happier life. And some people will go to some resort and, and do stem cell work. But when they come to MEA, they're doing more emotional, spiritual, and career-focused work to say, like, how do I consciously curate the next half of my adult life? Well, let me go back for a second to as we were emerging from the pandemic. And I've said this before, and I've experienced it. I've seen my friends experience it. Nobody anticipated it. Nobody planned for it. Uh, The question was, could you adjust to it? And that was, the pandemic really forced so many of us to come up close and personal with our own mortality. You know, we either got COVID and survived, or, or sadly, some of our friends and family members got COVID and didn't. But what it all created was this sense of a ticking clock and a different approach to living the rest of your life. So people came out of the pandemic saying, you know what, I don't need a new car, I don't need new clothes, new jewelry, new expensive electronic items. I want experiences because I don't know how long I'm going to be on the planet and I've got to do it. So everybody called, you know, I think mislabeled it as revenge travel. It wasn't. It was just refocused travel based on the fact that mm-hmm. they changed their priorities and that leads right to what you're doing with longevity travel. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I, th- I also think, we for a long time have heard of the term lifelong learning. And what we have coined is the idea of long life learning. How to actually, you know, when we're in adolescence, we learn about adulthood. We learn about all the, all the things we're supposed to learn to be great adults. But what do you learn in midlife? Um, what, how do you learn midlife to understand how to live a longer, deeper, more meaningful life? Um, and, and so some some longevity resorts are focused on the physical health side of things. They they'll have things like oh plasma exchanges and and stem cell therapy and regenerative ozone therapy and all kinds of those things biohacking therapy. Our focus is really more on the nine principles that came up in blue zones around what are the things that enhance longevity that don't necessarily require you to have stem cell work done. But instead, it's, it's, it's more lifestyle-based. It's socially based. The number one indicator uh, variable for people living a longer, healthier, happier life, uh, according to Harvard and Stanford, is how socially connected are we. So social wellness 
is a very important part of the wellness journey. And so at MBA, the Modern Elder Academy, that's what we teach in Baja and in Santa Fe, as well as with our online programs. And part of the reason I wrote the book, Learning to Love Midlife, because was because I wanted to be a voice for pro-aging products and services because the world is full of anti-aging products. And the 12 reasons why we get better with age um, is was my way of, of helping, you know, illuminate that in the book. You know, you talk about social wellness. Uh, I want to add to that definition and see if you agree. Because, you know, when you think about how people are emerging into this next phase of their life, so many of them are ill-prepared to do what? Just have a basic conversation. Um, yeah. They're, they're terrified of it. Um, they think that their solution is just going online. And I believe that engaging in conversations as a regular lifestyle is not just therapeutic, but it's 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 life enhancing. Well, I think both friends. If, if you thought of friendships and even conversation as a practice, something that you get better at because you exercise that muscle, then by so doing, by saying like, okay, I'm going to go have a deeper conversation with somebody, um, or I'm going to you know have a vulnerable conversation with someone, or I'm just going to actually reach out to someone who I love from college. I haven't seen in 30 years. And I'm actually going to say, hey, you know, let's figure out when we're going to be in the same city at the same time. I'd love to have a meal with you. So it, it, it is a practice. It, unfortunately, in our 20s, 30s, and 40s, we get so busy that often um, our, you know, our, our friendship muscle atrophies. And this is particularly true for men. Women are so much more socialized at a young age to keep their friendships, whereas men sort of like soldier on, you know, on their own. And end up feeling very lonely in their 50s. You know, one of the definitions, or it's always a search for the definition of the word luxury when it comes to travel. And we've mm. morphed from material goods to the luxury of time. Uh, yes. And, 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 and you have a chapter in the book that says, I'm starting to experience time affluence. Um, yeah. That's, that's a goal. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, money will make you rich, but time will make you wealthy. And um, so to be, to have time affluence is to curate your life in such a way. Um, and in the book, I really talk a lot about the great midlife edit. How do you get clear on what, you know, you need to let go of in your life? How do you downsize not just your home, but like your, your you know, your obligations and your responsibilities. And so you can create some time affluence. And if you actually have some time back in your life, it gives you the opportunity to try new things. And whether that's going to, you know, on a vacation or a trip somewhere, um, but or it's trying a, a new hobby at home, um, this is, you know, this is one of the most important things we do as we get older is staying curious and open to new experiences. I, I would highly recommend that people in their 50s, 60s and beyond do a longevity travel trip to some place. Maybe you come down to MEA to our Baja campus and then you learn Spanish while you're down here. Um, you, you learn how to... Um, learn a language. Uh, you know, the question I asked myself at age 57, I'm 63 now, was 10 years from now, Peter, what will I regret if I don't learn it or do it now? And at 57, I said like, well, I'm going to learn how to surf because I live in Baja part-time near a surf break and I live in Mexico and I don't know Spanish. And so there was a mindset I had, which was like, I'm too old to surf or learn a foreign language. But when I asked myself, well, 10 years from now, what will I regret? I started to realize, well, I could do that now. And I, I don't want to regret this 10 years from now, and it'll be harder to do it 10 years from now. So take, you know, seize the day, 
find those things that you want to do and 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 create a plan for for actually doing them. In fact, what you're really saying is you have time to become a beginner again. I think you said that. That is that exactly about, right. But I'm going to I'll go exactly. I'll go one more step beyond that, Chip, and say the worst five-letter word in the vocabulary that I can think of. I have a couple of them, but the worst one is later. Uh, we don't yeah. we, we don't have time for that. Every time you use that word in a sentence, you either don't do it at all or you don't do it as well. Either way, it's a negative. So let me just say, don't get this book later. Get it now. The name of the book, yeah. Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age by my good friend, Chip Conley. Chip, thanks so much for joining us and teaching us a little bit about the necessity for longevity travel. Back with more from the Dominic here in New York as I on Travel continues right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues from the Dominic Hotel right here in Soho in Manhattan. Of course, if you need to reach me, and many of you do, you just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. As I said earlier in the show, I first discovered this hotel a long time ago when it was then called the Trump Soho Hotel. Uh, but for many years now, it has changed names, changed attitude, changed design, but it hasn't changed the great views, and it hasn't changed a lot of other things that made this hotel a great hotel. Joining me now, Justine McCleary, the general manager. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. And you've been here, what? Ten years. Wow. Yes. So, and, and, and you know, when you see a hotel like this with the views that you have here, it's sort of a hidden gem. People don't realize that. Yes, absolutely. And, and as you can see, you know, it has floor to ceiling windows, so great views of Manhattan, great sunset views um, from anywhere, and, and in a great neighborhood like Soho, right? Who doesn't want to be here? Well, of course, you talk about great sunset views. You're right. I'm looking right now at the Hudson River, and the sun sets in the west. You can't miss it. Yes, it's beautiful. What's changed in the hotel? Um, you know, the team has been here for 14 years now, so that has remained the same. Um, but we've since done some modifications to the guest rooms. Um, over the last few years, we have a beautiful outdoor pool deck on the seventh floor with nice new outdoor furniture that'll be open um, coming this May. And of course, you got your start at the Ritz-Carlton Central Park South. Yes. A hotel I know very well because we celebrated recently uh, the memory of Norman the bartender. Oh, Norman is the best, isn't he? he and, and we, in fact, we had the celebration at the bar, and everybody came in from all over the world just to celebrate Norman. I bet that was very special. I know, but that prepared you for this. Yes, definitely. And you're originally from the Philippines. Yes, that is correct. I've, but I've been a New Yorker now for about 15 years, so I consider New York my home. Now, you don't just have a spa here. Every hotel has a spa these days, right? You also have a Michelin star restaurant. That is correct. We have Vestry, which is our Michelin star restaurant. It opened uh, in the pandemic and was fortunate to receive its Michelin star the first year of operation and has since uh, retained the Michelin star now going on three years. What about this neighborhood is special for you? To me, this neighborhood is very unique. It has um, these beautiful cobblestone streets and cast iron buildings. Um, it's a great mix of shopping. If you love to come to the neighborhood for shopping, there's a lot of art galleries and restaurants, of course. And of course, 
for me, I mean, people, it's amazing to me how many people don't understand mass transit. I mean, you're close to the subway, too. Yes, very close. We have uh, two subway lines actually close to us within walking distance, uh, the C or the E and the one and the three. <laughs> that's four of them. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> it's interesting to see that you're, we're now speaking right now on the 44th floor. Correct. Right? I mean, that's the best view ever. Yes, it is. Unobstructed views of the city. When people stay here at the hotel, what's the thing that surprises them the most? I think the size of the rooms is one that's surprising. Um, our smallest room starts at about 425 square feet, which is very big for New York City standards. And all our rooms have a separate shower and tub. As you can see in this room, it has a floating tub with a great view of the city. And of course, the artwork. Yes, beautiful artwork. We're in currently our street art suite, uh, which we have a partnership with Paul Richard, who I believe you'll be speaking to later. Yeah, he's coming up a little bit there. I'm he sure, is, yeah. yeah. So he can tell you more about his artwork in this room. But you have art in the other rooms as well. That is correct, yes. There are hotels around the country where the art is actually dis displayed because they want to sell it. Yeah. As opposed to typical hotel art, which is terrible. <laughs> I wouldn't say terrible, right? It depends. Oh, listen, I've stayed in hotel rooms with the art on the wall with the dogs playing poker. Come on. <laughs> That's true. So we're, we're very um, unique in that we have this partnership with Paul Richard. So uh, he has a good mix of uh, traditional art, but also street art, as you can see uh, in the room. What is it? I'm going to ask you to take off your general manager's hat and put on your traveler hat. Okay. When you walk into a hotel room, What's the one thing that you go, okay, I know this room doesn't work, or you, you, or you see it immediately and say, oh, I know this room does work? That is a great question. To me, the first thing I look at as a traveler when I enter a room is the bed, right? It has to be an inviting, you know, um, bed. The cleaner, the crisp the sheets are, the more inviting it is. And I think that sets the tone for the type of stay I'm going to have. Most people if they're honest, we'll tell you they spend a lot of time in their bed that when they're not sleeping. They're working, they're reading, they're watching TV, they're taking phone calls, right? It's their office. Right. Right? Absolutely. You just spread out over the bed. Yes. The first thing I notice is the lighting. Because, in the bathroom. Because you spend more waking hours in your bathroom than any other room in the hotel. So if the hotel gets the lighting right in the bathroom, especially for women then chances are the rest of the hotel is going to work just fine. It's a very good point, yes. It's very important, right? Especially for the ladies as you apply makeup, right? And, you know, as you said, when you spend a lot of time, it's important to make sure there's ample lighting in the bathroom. But it's more than just the lighting. It's the space because, let's face it, I know I'm, I'm making a value judgment here. There are search and rescue teams trying to figure out all the stuff you bring with you into the bathroom. Yes, very true. And, very if, you don't, true. and if you don't have shelf space, it's a disaster yes. zone in there. I 100% agree. The one thing I'll be happy to note is that you're not trapped, at least in this hotel, with mood lighting. You can actually have light in the room. Yes, lots of natural light uh, throughout the rooms. Any hotel that gives me mood lighting puts me immediately in a bad mood. Because <laughs> I want to be able to see. That's wanna... true, or makes you really tired, right? Tired before I get angry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Justine McCleary, the general manager, right here at the Soho. What well, was known as the Dominic Soho, right? Yes, thank you so much. Right down here, looking over the Hudson River. And when we come back, artist Paul Richard, whose work is everywhere in this hotel. Back right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back.
Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg here back with you as Eye on Travel continues from the Dominic here in New York City. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. In our last segment, we were talking to Justine, the general manager, and one of the things we talked about is art in hotels and art in hotel rooms. And it's been my experience in the past, a little bit less than in the present, but in the past, most hotel art sucks. Most hotel art is like, you know, the dogs playing poker. Um, and it's not something you want to take home. Well, a lot of hotels have gotten smart. They realize that not only when you check into a room are you test driving the room for things you might like to have in your own home, that applies to the art as well. And does the art actually represent the neighborhood, the community, or the region where you're actually staying? My next guest knows a little bit about that because he has a partnership with the Dominic, artist Paul Richard. How are you, sir? Good, thank you. How are you, Peter? Good. I mean, I'm looking around this room. I know this is radio, but I'll try to paint the picture. Okay. All of your art is in this room. And, and what I think about it is you sort of bridge the gap if there is a gap between, you know, fine art and street art, mm-hmm. right? I mean, because, and there's something called drip art. Drip art, right. W- what is you that? You could call that drip art or drip drawing. Which mm. means? Um, it's a simple method. I pour paint out of a cup onto a surface. Could be a found object or paper or canvas. Um, let it dry and hang it on the wall. Period. Uh, right. There's another element, too, though, and it's the street art, which I do on the sidewalks. Tell it me just about stays that. put. Give me For idea. example, there's one in front of the hotel. It's a pigeon. And How appropriate. Right. We're in New York. Yeah. Well, I get some of my best ideas from collectors. I was hoping you'd say yeah. <laughs> pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a pigeon, and? Right. It's um, just a poor technique from a cup, as I described, and um, <clears throat> it takes a couple of minutes. Um, and it's sort of, um, you know, there's a little bit of luck involved, but <clears throat> it's um, spontaneous and one continuous line, ideally. And the thing or is, one interrupted line from the poor. Right. But there's a message there, too, that you want to essentially try to reflect the neighborhood in which you're existing. I think that that does it in, in itself. I mean, somehow you're influenced by your surroundings. Because where we are in Soho, this is old New York when you get down to it. It is. Right. This is close to the old shoreline. So what other influences are you having to to do this? Um, Well, one of my greatest inspirations is coffee. After that, just working. Um, Going through the process of uh, making pictures. But, and, but uh, I'm thinking about symbolism here. I mean, you've done stuff with the Chrysler Building, fire hydrants. Right. Well, again, I think uh, typically an artist is surrounded by his surroundings, um, his personal experiences. Um, you know, it's not something that is calculated. Right. So the pigeon, I suppose, is related to an urban environment. Oh, yeah. And um, it was a spontaneous thing. I mean, no, reflecting on it, I would say, okay, yeah, it's certainly an influence from the, the surroundings. Is there one message you want your art to send? It's open to interpretation, the pieces. So I, I'm not steering it one way or another intentionally. 
Right, but you want it to reflect the community in which it exists, so. Um, well, yes, I, would, I suppose I would like that to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's not an anomaly, in other words. It's like um, it's something, uh, I don't know, South Beach related in Manhattan. <laughs> well, as spontaneous as you would like to be, what's been your most difficult piece? Um, every new piece. Yeah, every every new piece is an experiment. So it's trial and error, experimentation, uh, methodical work ethic. But you know, if I, if I were to paint something, it would all be trial and error. <laughs> you know, because well, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, that's what they call a happy accident, I suppose. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, do you it's have a, any of your pieces named that, that a happy accident? A, I that, like that. that. Yeah, that could be a euphemism, but it often works. So you have a lot of happy accidents. <laughs> I hope. I hope. Again, it's open to interpretation. Right. Well, that's the beautiful thing about art, because not everybody has to like it, but the point is they can appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to create an audience. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm doing the pieces outside. It's an instant audience. You know, the, the sidewalks of New York are teeming with people. And by the way, for those people who have not been to New York, although Paul knows this already better, they're teeming with pigeons, too. (laughs) (laughs) Some spots more than others. Paul Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You got it. Back with more from the Dominic in New York with a pigeon or two right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues from the Dominic here in Soho in Manhattan. Of course, if you need me for anything, you know the drill. Just email me, peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. I think it's safe to say that every hotel that I know of now insists that it has a spa. And, of course, it gets down to a definition of what is a spa, what's in the spa, and how they differ from everybody else. And it's always been my impression, and my next guest can probably dispute that, but it's always been my impression that everybody who works at hotel spas, or most everybody, they whisper. They don't really talk loudly. It's like, we're in the spa. Here we are. They're, they're like escape librarians. Hello. But in any case... I know my next guest is not going to whisper, but she's from the Sisley Spa right here at the Dominic, Jennifer Kirby. Thank you, Peter. It's very nice to be here. Um, and, you, and you didn't whisper. <laughs> no, I, 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 my, my voice portrays. Um, but anyway. But let me ask you a couple of questions about spas because you know, they have evolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have gone from just spas to wellness as well. You know, the, it's, a, it's an entire movement now. It's nothing new. But it's interesting how each hotel defines what they consider a spa treatment. So some of the hotels will tell me, they'll always have a brochure, right, of some half-naked woman with stones on her back. And I'm like going, stop with the stones, right? But what you have here, which is fascinating to me, you've got a hammam. Yes. Explain. Um, so it's a Moroccan hammam. It's... Now, how does that differ from a Turkish hammam? Turkish, well, a Turkish hammam, you go in and you do it yourself. Uh-huh. You're basically, you're scrubbing yourself, you're sitting on the stone, you're releasing any toxins with the heat. A Moroccan hammam, 
We do everything for you. And that's Oh, I'm liking the Moroccan mom. <laughs> <laughs> and that and that is the portray of what a five star property can bring is that we don't want you to do anything. We want to anticipate every level of service that you So the have. model of your spa is just lay there. Yes. We will take care of you. <laughs> but let's talk about the hammam itself because my wife is Turkish and, and when we're over in Istanbul, we go to the hammam. It's mm-hmm. amazing, right? Yes. Because you've got that big slab and you're lying on this piece of marble and the next thing you know, you're getting scrubbed in this and it's like you don't want to leave. Correct. Now, the old days of a Turkish bath was different. Mm-hmm. You came out of there, your skin was red and, and the women who were treating you were angry. <laughs> No beating with banana leaves. Exactly, right? (laughs) But the whole purpose of the Moroccan is you're not only detoxifying yourself, um, you are getting that scrub, you're getting that olive oil treatment. Um, It's great for this weather here we have in New York, so it kind of just acclimates all of you back to normal. Okay, I've got a question that I always ask people in spas, so I'm going to ask you as well. Mm -hmm. My idea of the ultimately perfect massage is one that happens at 11 o'clock at night, or 10 o'clock at night, because when you're done, you're done. Mm-hmm. Somebody gives me a massage at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm like, I'm finished for the day. It's tough. Have you ever thought of keeping the spa open so that, so that people can actually have that late massage? Of course, and we've done requests. Yeah. Um, we, we actually will open the spa at any time of the day for you, um, anytime after hours and so forth. We do it for VIPs, we do it for if it's... In advance, we do right. it, you know, automatically, we accommodate them. Um, as but far you know the point that I'm making. It's yes. Just because if, if somebody gives me a spa treatment at four in the afternoon, I fall asleep at dinner. Well, I, I can... You have a, you have yeah. a, a way around that? Yeah. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> so, as, as you said, spas have evolved. Right. So, massages have evolved as well. And the technicians, especially here in New York, because they are so educated, they have invigorating massages. They have relaxing massages. Some, sometimes it's just energy work that they need to just reinvigorate, and people go to their cocktail hour after, or they're like, oh, I have a business dinner, but I really had a bad flight. It's really helping bring out that jet lag to kind of get them to the next adventure. By the adventure. way, I want to massage even if I had a good flight. <laughs> but, but the thing is, do you have that on the menu as a, as a separate kind of a massage? It, um, they're not named that way, but they are education from the front desk. And they can kind of pinpoint what is actually needed for your experience. Wow. Is there one treatment that you're doing here other than the Moroccan hammam mm-hmm. that nobody else is doing? Um, well, we are a Sicily spa here in New York, so no one else in New York City so, does our services. Okay, so we're talking French. We are French. Um, we are French experience from the moment you enter um, through the end. So it is their repro- retail products that we have in the spa. It's their services exclusive in the spa. We also have the Dominic Honeybee, which is exclusive to this location. Which that, means? Which is part of, it's incorporated with Sicily products. It does a nice scrub. It does a nice application with a honey mask at the very end of it. Um, because if you're not familiar with the Dominic, we do have during the summer months um, bees that we harvest. So, so the, bee, the, 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 the honey's coming from the bees? Yes. How cool is that? So it's something a little bit different than what other locations are doing here in the city, but it kind of brings a point of difference just for our location. So really what I want is the invigorating massage with the honey mask. Well. No? A honeybee ritual is what we call it. Excuse me. (laughs) Or the honeybee ritual. Exactly. Okay. Just checking. Just want to make sure. 
Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, listen, I'm coming back for the Moroccan hammam. That's the one. Okay. That is the one. Jennifer Kirby from the Sicily Spa right here at the Dominic. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's we great, really have, great being no, here. You have to say, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's the spa language. Here we go. My pleasure. There we go. Okay. Thanks again. <laughs> that music means we're out of time for the entire show. Lots of people to thank. Amanda Morris, our producer. Jeff Ryder doing the boards up in Connecticut. Sharon Teleska, Joseph Petit, and the entire staff here at the Dominic. We'll see you next week, everybody, from another location somewhere around the world. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.